Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. These people have been living in limbo for a long time and facing so much uncertainty that it's absolutely critical that our response meets the needs of everyone in the cohort. We do need a country that is built on pathways to permanency. Mm. Hello, I'm Sarah Martin, Chief Political Correspondent at Guardian Australia. In this episode of Australian Politics, I'm talking to Andrew Giles, the Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs. Well, I really wanted to have a chat to Andrew Giles because obviously we had the Jobs and Skills Summit in Canberra last week. The issue of skilled migration, visa processing were a really big deal. Um, And so Andrew Giles, as the responsible minister, has been very busy sort of looking to see how they can streamline the system to not just improve the availability of skilled migrants, but also looking at the situation that's affecting migrants already in the country and including those who are on temporary protection visas and safe haven enterprise visas. Uh, A lot of issues in the portfolio, so it was good to have a chat to him. Andrew Giles, welcome to Australian Politics. How are you? I am great, Sarah. Great to be with you and talking with your listeners. There's a lot to talk about in your portfolio. You've obviously taken it on at a time where there's there are plenty of issues on the table um, for you to consider. Um, I wanted to ask you, sort of broadly speaking, first up, after three, are we three months, four months in the job? What's on your mind? How's it looking? Well, I think today is actually my 100 days as the Minister for Immigration. So Happy anniversary. Uh, thank you. I'm not sure how widely it's been marked, <laughs> so um, that, that's given me a bit of a fillip. Um, I'm incredibly excited by the opportunity the Prime Minister's given me to be the Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs right now as we think about, I think, the sort of country we can be to return immigration to a central, fundamental pillar of national government government and recognise that that we are a nation, a modern nation, that has been built on migration. Mm. And I, for me, the, the challenge of effectively restarting the program, working with my colleague, uh, Claire O'Neill in Home Affairs, is incredibly exciting. To think about what has happened over the last couple of years with the dislocations and separations caused by the pandemic, to reflect on that experience, but also to, to think big about the country we can be and the role that a migration program plays in that. 
So obviously we had the Jobs and Skills Summit last week and there was some there was some big news um, on the immigration front there. Can you just talk us through, obviously, a couple of things. One, the increase to the um, permanent migration intake. If we just start with that. Can you talk us through, I know you've made the point that a lot of those people are already in the country. Why can't they work? How is this going to help business? How does that unlock the, help the skills shortage? Yeah, well, there's a lot in that. And I think there's a couple of points to be made here. Firstly, I think it's really important to emphasise that the conversations we had at the Jobs and Skills Summit and the conversations that were had in the lead up to that summit in the more than 100 workshops that were conducted shaped our understanding of the needs of the Australian economy and the Australian society in terms of the permanent program and led us to make as a government a very significant decision to increase the permanent program to 195, an increase of 35 places. This will make a big difference. And I guess it is important to appreciate, as you've just noted then, that many of the people who will proceed into this 195,000 places are people who are here in Australia on temporary forms of visas who will progress to permanent visas to complete or to take another big step in their journey, hopefully towards citizenship and full participation in the country. But obviously a big part of it is also about attracting those skilled people from around the world, recognising a couple of things that we obviously face a skills crisis right now, but also we are in a highly competitive global competition for skilled labour and we really need to look at what other countries are doing to not rest on our laurels and make sure that we are providing uh, attractive offers to people to come to work here and to make their lives here. Mm. And so is that offering that increased option for permanency, does that mean we're not going to lose the people? Is that why it helps address skill shortages if we're not sort of getting a net gain of workers? Well, we are getting a net gain of workers, a very significant one. But we are also providing that incentive that you talk about, making sure that we don't drift, continue a slow drift, which took place under the the lazy migration settings of the former government, towards an economy and indeed a society that's almost characterised as a guest worker model. Mm. That's not the multicultural Australia that I'm proud to be a citizen of because we do need a country that is built on pathways to permanency. Mm. And I think for all um, the the reasons of social cohesion and how we relate to one another, but also in recognition that people wanting to make that choice, thinking about destinations to migrate, to develop their skills, to further their career, That's something that they are thinking about too Mm. and it's something that's very important to many of the people uh, who we'd like to see coming to Australia and making a contribution. So just explain to me, so we have an increase to the permanent migration cap. How do temporary workers um, sort of work as part of that and if an employer wants to bring in a a new temporary worker, how how is that managed? Look, there there will always be a role for temporary um, migration but I think what we have seen in the past, in the recent past, is a drift towards it being um, the default answer to Mm. so many public policy problems. Again, I think just a very lazy approach. Looking at immigration distinct from our skills and training policies, our sense of the sort of economy we want to drive and its needs, and that's why the work that Brendan O'Connor is doing in establishing Jobs and Skills Australia is both so important and it's so important that we see these things as closely connected, Mm. that we don't see our skilled migration policy distinctly from our vision of the sort of labour market that that we see for Australia. Mm. And obviously one of the other debates at the um, Jobs and Skills Summit was about the income level that you set a a, um, temporary skilled migrant at. Um, That's something you've now got to work out. Where do you think the, the consensus is at the moment? I mean, obviously that 
has been set at $53,000 for a long time. Can you talk to me through why that has been why that is now a bit problematic and um, what the government is looking to do about that? Yeah, well, it's, it's been at the same level for the duration of the former government. And mm. I think I don't need to explain to you or your listeners that um, the cost of living hasn't remained at the same level mm. over that near decade. So we do need to address the TISMET. That's the view of the government. The TISMET is the is the you know the acronym that covers off uh, uh, this 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 measure. Uh, we've also got to recognise the the challenge that the lower rate has posed in terms of migrant worker exploitation. Mm. Some of the questions about how um, our labour market has been functioning for mm. domestic and um, migrant workers as well. What I was really pleased to see at the Jobs and Skills Summit was unanimity on the need to increase it. Mm. I think that was really encouraging. Now, we are going to have a debate about the settings in the short term and how they can perhaps be adjusted over time. But I think we're on really sound foundations to have that conversation, to meet the commitment we had to, to lift this rate, but to find a way through that I think we can really get pretty much everyone on the same page on. Okay. And I want to come back to the issue of, of migrant exploitation, but just on that level. So obviously the unions are pushing for sort of 90,000 odd um you know, in a way to sort of act as a disincentive to just rely on a, a, a temporary skilled migrant before looking to an Australian worker. What do you think about that level? Is that is that about right, do you think? Well, the ACTU have put forward their view and, and a reasoned argument behind it. A range of different bodies and um, academic experts have put forward their views. Um, I'm listening very carefully to all of these voices. I think there's a conversation which needs to play out uh, around this and, and I look forward to further consultation with my friends in the union movement, um, with the various business interests and also with academic interests to try and build on the high-level consensus that was there at the summit mm. to produce an outcome that everyone's comfortable with. And when do you think the government will have an answer to that? Oh, look, I think this is a serious question. It's going to take a bit of time. Yep. Um, again, as soon as possible is the answer, but I think it's important to get this right, mm. to provide certainty to people who are thinking about engaging labour, to workers and, and to people across the economy. Mm. Okay. So obviously until that decision is landed, you've still got a situation where you can have those workers brought in at that um, at that wage. Um, I know you've got an eye on um, addressing migrant exploitation. Can you just talk us through what some of the problems are at the moment? Yeah. Yeah, it obviously isn't just an issue which is about the wage mm. rate at which someone can come into the yep. country. Um, it's about recognising that your presence in the country being continued on your visa status is a particular vulnerability. Mm. And we've seen so many awful stories about the exploitation of migrant workers in Australia that it demands a response and a serious and considered response. And indeed, the former government established a task force to look at this issue back in 2016. That task force reported in 2019. Mm. Since then, very little has happened. Mm and the challenges have got worse. Mm. Um, this is a real problem uh, and, and I was really pleased to see again the consensus, not just from the unions, not just from this government, the consensus from participants at the uh, at the Jobs and Skills Summit that we need to act on this mm. and I'm looking to act early in the new year. And, and I guess I'd make a couple of points about what needs to happen. Mm. Firstly, we've got to stop a focus that looks only at the individual in question. Mm. I think that's been the fundamental problem. We've got to recognise that we've got to put in place a regime that both has a regulatory framework and indeed effective enforcement that doesn't target the person on the visa, mm -hmm. that targets the people doing the exploitation. Mm -hmm. that, that's fundamental. I think we've also got to recognise the dimensions of this issue because 
Obviously, our first obligation is to ensure that everyone who is working in Australia has the full protection of the law, that mm. they are safe at work, that they are being paid appropriately, and they have meaningful recourse to raise issues mm. where there are um, concerns about how they are being treated in the workplace. They don't have the fear that their visa status will be used against them, as has happened time and time again. Mm. Well-intentioned measures have been put in place in the past, but they haven't proved effective. So we know we've got more to do. I just want to make this additional mm. point because, again, it comes to some wider issues because my first concern is the workers, but these are issues that flow across the economy and they also, again, damage, frankly, our um, international perception. Mm. We need to be a country that demonstrates no tolerance mm. for these sort of practices mm. because so many people come here to work for a short time or for the rest of their lives. They deserve an assurance that they will be safe, respected at work. Mm. And is part of the problem with that the way it has been set up in terms of, um, you know, a worker sort of being tied or sponsored by one individual employer and so they, they fear retribution or they fear losing their visa status and being deported if it's their word against the employers? What? Why can't people speak out at the moment? Yeah, there are complicated reasons and you've hit the nail on the head with one of the critical questions, which again, I was really pleased to see emerge as a, as a consensus um, issue at the Jobs and Skills Summit, that we look at an industry approach to um, uh, skilled migration. Mm. So in some areas where there are skill shortages, we can look at a model that, that brings workers in through their engagement in industry rather than through being completely tied to one employer for mm. the reasons that you've touched on there. And of course, one of the concerns here is that good employers feel very aggrieved by these processes. Mm. And what I'm determined to do is to stop a race to the bottom mm. that is fuelled by exploitation that has been too long unchecked. Mm. And, I mean, the, we've seen some fairly horrific stories, you know, particularly in the agricultural sector with fruit pickers being paid abysmally, um, you know, housing conditions, even for the Pacific Labor scheme as well, um, people living in crowded housing and not being given sort of, um, you know, the, the, the conditions that you would, exp uh, you know, an Australian worker would expect to have as part of their employment. What have you seen that has shocked you about the lack of regulation in this space? I, I think... Each of these individual stories, and we've we've read and seen too many of them, are shocking. Um, it's also shocking. You talk about those industries in particular, and these are the places where we have seen um, what might be described as the stereotypical um, workplace um, migrant worker exploitation. Mm. But it's happening in every industry. Mm. It, it's happening in every industry, and the commonality is the vulnerability of the worker mm. to exercise what should be um, their workplace rights because of their apprehension that their entitlement to stay in the country mm. could be put at risk. Mm. So the focus has really got to be about making sure that our remedy, our, our approach does not solely focus on that issue and focuses more on those who are seeking to exploit um, the vulnerable workers. And so how do you, I mean, given that the employer often goes through the process of paying the fees, finding the worker, how do you um, untether that, I guess? Look, that's, a, that's a, a really important question. We've taken on board the recommendations of the Migrant Worker Task Force, but they are now three years old and I think there is some more work to be done. Some really productive conversations have been taking place around the Jobs and Skills Summit and, and I've certainly been chatting with my uh, friend and colleague, Tony Burke, to make mm. sure that we have an approach that, that covers off the migration aspects but also is squarely focused on those issues that, that are within his domain as the Minister for um, Workplace Relations mm. 
mm. employment. Yeah, obviously some really big issues in that part of your portfolio. I wanted to ask you about, um, we saw a protest at Parliament House this week um, from people on temporary protection visas and safe haven enterprise visas. Uh, we know there's a lot of people who feel like they're in limbo in this country who uh, want to be um, fast-tracked to permanency as as you guys promised before the election. Can you give us an update as to where that process is at um, and how long it's going to take for, for those people to have a bit more certainty? Sure. I mean, I really feel the frustration and anxiety of, of people who are on TPVs and chefs. They've mm. been living in limbo for more than 10 years. Mm. Um, they all arrived here before Operation Sovereign Borders. That's a really critical point in this, mm. that none of the issues that relate to the treatment of this group of people affect our commitment to Operation Sovereign Borders and our understanding that what we need to be doing in this space is maintain a strong border without abandoning our sense of humanity and decency. And that's really what this election commitment is all about. Um, it's important to me that we meet this commitment, that we meet all the commitments, of course, that we made at the last election, but that we get it right. These people have been living in limbo for a long time and facing so much uncertainty that it's absolutely critical that our response meets the needs of everyone in the cohort. Um, I think we're making good progress. I've spent a lot of time, Sarah, going around the country listening to people affected, listening to people who hold these visas, speaking with their advocates and speaking with their lawyers as well. I'm determined to put forward a proposition as soon as possible, but my main concern is to get it right. Okay. And can you talk us through why that is more complex than it might seem? There, There is... Um, the nature of my role is an unusual one in that I obviously the, the immigration minister, as you'd be well aware, has sufficient has very significant discretionary powers. You have God powers. I'm pretty <laughs> well, sure. Thanks to I, Scott I, Morrison. I, I think um, I think that that is is overstated. The discretionary powers and it's massively overstated. Mm. Um, and and obviously those roles are very important. Those discretionary decisions that I can make, but this is not one of them. Mm. Um, the the issue of the treatment. This follows obviously decisions the former government made through enacting a law eight or, eight or so years ago. Um, so working through that and its impact on, you know, 31-odd thousand people who are in different stages of their journey. Some have been granted visas. Some are yet to have uh, an initial decision made in respect of their application, notwithstanding the long period of time. Others are in various stage, stages of review. So it's really important to concentrate on finding an approach that recognises all of these different sets of circumstances and deals with all of those. Mm. And again, um, I know I've sort of keep pressing on this, but in terms of a time frame, when when can these people expect to have that that extended period of limbo um, come to an end? As soon as possible. But I want to do so when we've found the answer, mm. and to not do anything that that might further traumatise people who've mm. been um, in very difficult circumstances for some time. So there is. Almost no issue more important to me than, than getting this sorted, but I'm determined to get it right so that the solution is effective and enduring. Do you mean that there's a risk that um, someone could be granted a right and then have it taken away? Or can you explain what you mean by the potential for that process to end up well, creating more trauma? I just don't, I don't quite understand. Well, what, what I mean by that mm. is that uh, I, I spent a lot of time in the last parliament meeting with people following the 2019 election. Mm. And I saw a group of people who um, had, which at that election, Labor also uh, made the same commitment mm. about getting people off temporary protection into permanent protection. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I, 
I will never forget the uh, the trauma that was expressed to me on those occasions. So my determination is in meeting this commitment, which is a very important commitment, mm. is to get it right. All right. So uh, interrelated issue, I guess, um, is is the ability of the department to be able to deal with all, all of these uh, com- competing demands, um, obviously with the increase in permanent skill migration, processing um, of, uh, you know, the, the visa system more generally, um, while not sort of neglecting those people who are still going through a process of reunion visas or fam- family visas or partner visas, um, can you talk us through what you're doing to boost the capacity in the department? Sure. Um, my immediate focus really has been on getting systems moving. Um, I think we understand now more than ever before how important efficient visa processing is. Mm. And uh, I was you know, shocked that there were more than a million visa applications awaiting our government when we took office. Mm. Um, I'm also conscious that over the last nine years, our capacity to do this work was run down. Um, mm. You may recall the former government indeed tried to privatise significant mm. aspects of our visa processing system. Um, we've taken the opposite route. Um, my focus has been on rebuilding capacity, um, meeting with and listening to the women and the men who do this work, which is really important work in the national interest and mm. it's been a privilege to hear from them. I've also been focused on giving them more help. We now have 215 more people processing visas than when we took office and there's around 190 more in the process of being onboarded. Mm -hmm. Plenty of people are doing overtime to get Mm -hmm. visas moving and at the the Jobs and Skills Summit I was very pleased to be able to announce that we will introduce an additional surge capacity of 500 more Mm -hmm. staff to get our visa system moving because it's absolutely fundamental. It's absolutely fundamental to meeting the skills crisis and the job and and indeed the labour crisis. Mm -hmm. It's fundamental to reconnecting Australians. I mean, we are a country where more than half of us were either born overseas or with a parent born overseas. Mm So those connections to places outside our borders is so important to Mm. so many people at a human level as well as an economic level. Mm. Getting this moving is an absolute priority for me and the government because we recognise this is about human connections in our country, a country where more than half of us are either born overseas or have a parent born overseas, Mm. as well as an economic imperative. We need to to really focus on this. Mm. And I'm so pleased that we're putting into, um, into the system the resources that will get visas moving to get the economy moving. Okay, so so in May it was the backlog was sitting at about a million. What's it looking like now? It's about nine hundred thousand, just mm-hmm. over. And it's important to recognise in that time we have seen a lot of applications mm-hmm. come in. For example, in June we had our biggest ever month in terms of offshore student visa applications. Mm-hmm. So we are getting a lot of visas, we are processing a lot of visas, but there's more work to be done to keep the system moving. Okay, so when you took office it was about a million. It's down to about nine hundred thousand. If you've got a lot of a lot more applications coming in, that would suggest that backlog's going to still be there for some time, right? I'm confident with the resources that uh, have been put to bear, the resources that are coming on stream and the announcement that was made at the Jobs and Skills Summit, we can get it down. Okay. Now, I know you're going to, when I ask you how long it's going to take, you're going to say as, as, as quickly as, as I can, um, how long is it going to take? Well, I'm confident that we can get to the level that we'd expect to be because obviously the number of visas on hand should never be zero. Yeah. Um, I think by the end of the year, we can make really really good progress. Okay. And where should it be sitting? Just 
for future reference so we can bring you back at the end of the year and see how you're going. Considerably lower than 900,000. <laughs> like half, a quarter. We're obviously seeking to boost um, the permanent migration intake. Yep. We, are, we are doing a range of things. It should be considerably lower than 900,000. Mm. But why don't you have me back at the end of the year? <laughs> well, we, we don't have a figure to hold you to account, but let's, let's what, should we say you want to at least halve it by the end of the year? I think I think Harvard is probably, Harvard's probably going a little bit too far. Okay. Um, because again, we want people to be applying to come to a Australia. We want people to be choosing Australia uh, and we, we need to make a big effort to attract talent. So, um, you know, I understand where your question's coming from, but I just want to make the point to you and your listeners that there, there, isn't, a, there isn't a magic number here, but we do need to get it down significantly. Yeah. Okay. So one thing I was hoping you might be able to explain to our listeners is, you know, go to the Department of Immigration website, you have a look at the processing times for a bunch of different visas. One, there are like so many different visa classes, and I'm sure you're, you know, dream of you dream of subcategory visa classes now. But um, does there need to be a simplification of the system? And I just want to ask why, for example, you know, partner reunion visas seem to be taking up to sort of four years when other visas are processed a lot more quickly. Can you explain to us? what some of those systemic problems might be. Yeah, well, Sarah, firstly, when we're off air, you were describing me as not being much fun. And, and then you talk about <laughs> me dreaming was of... self-proclaimed, actually. <laughs> it was self-proclaimed. But, but what could be more fun than dreaming about visa subclasses? Okay, well, now it's all starting to... It all makes sense now. This is the reason you don't have fun. And, and this is the point at which this podcast episode really takes off. <laughs> um, uh, there, there's, there's obviously huge complexity in the system yeah. and um, I know that is frustrating for sponsors and for our applicants. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm also reluctant to make sweeping commitments about mm. simplification at the moment, um, particularly as you would appreciate, um, Minister O'Neill has committed to mm. a, a significant review, mm. which I think will be a good guidance note. In terms of the different categories, one of the things that I would say is that we've made some decisions around processing priorities that related to some of the short-term mm. imperatives. Mm. Now, I think what we need to be able to do is to not just have a crisis response, and that's one of the reasons why we put these resources in, mm. so that our focus isn't just on getting back to where we were before this skills crisis emerged, but to look beyond it, and to look beyond it not just in terms of the economy, mm. but also in terms of some of these other issues about mm. the human connections that are also a huge part of, of, our, of our visa system and, yeah. and, and who we are as a nation. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you know, what your 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 colleague Julian Hill had a sit-in at his office um, and he made the point that, you know, it's obviously you don't want to have the focus on skills detract from the visa processing for those humanitarian visas. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that, obviously, um, with the Afghan, the, the fault of Kabul and the Afghan, Afghan crisis, we had a huge uh, surge in applications of Afghan people wanting to come to Australia. Can you tell us how that process is going and how that particular backlog is progressing. Yeah, I mean, on the first point, I, I, I'm, I'm the Minister for Multicultural Affairs as mm. well as the Minister for Immigration. I'm really conscious of the importance of enabling all of those connections between people in Australia and their family, including their, their separated partners mm. overseas. Uh, I'm also... Um, I'm also very conscious of meeting our humanitarian obligations and I'm sure you'd be aware that we've made some significant contributions there. Mm. So just to be clear, these are big parts of my thinking um, mm. as the Minister and will always be big parts of my thinking in terms of how our visa system operates. Mm. In, in terms of Afghanistan, I mean, the, the demand... 
the demand for protection is quite overwhelming. Mm. Um, that the numbers are staggering, and and the scale of of what has been um, happening since the fall of Kabul just over a year ago uh, is something that I'm sure every Australian is um, is struck by. Mm. And I think every Australian, uh, I acknowledge the contributions of the, of the former government to recognises that we do owe a particular moral obligation mm. to people, particularly those who who helped us. Mm. Um, so a big focus of, of my effort is obviously on ensuring that those people who have uh, applied for protection in Australia and have a connection to Australia uh, are being appropriately registered so mm-hmm. that we can get those visas moving mm. and particularly find pathways to get people to safety. Mm. It's a really big challenge. Mm. It's a really big challenge because of the situation in um, Afghanistan at the moment. Mm. Um, but I can assure you and your listeners that of all the things that, that um, of all the things that, that really um, draw my attention constantly, it's the need to do all we can mm. in this space. Mm. And how are the numbers looking? Well, we, I think, have registrations that cover 212,000 mm. um, people. Um, they are not quite that many applications, mm. maybe 50-something thousand, um, and there's more to be registered. Mm. Um, I'm conscious also, as I said earlier, about the challenges of people finding a pathway from Afghanistan and the dangers that are connected to that. Mm. Um, that's a, a really big challenge. Mm. Um, there is a lot of work to be done here to, to meet our commitments and to do all we can to get people who have uh, who need protection, who have a connection to Australia, mm. to safety. Um, one final question, uh, which is sort, sort of related to that and, and given obviously your portfolio also covers multicultural affairs and we've talked largely about um, visas today, but... Um, once people arrive in the country, I know there's been a lot of criticism of how some of Australia's um, support services are functioning, um, the type of support that uh, uh, refugees and new arrivals do get in the country in terms of English language learning, um, getting them ready to, to be able to work in Australia. Is that something that you're looking at and how, how those services can be improved? Definitely. Um, I think we've got amazing people who do work in the settlement space mm. Um, but we can do a lot better. One of the things that was uh, a big feature of my engagement lead up to the Jobs and Skills Summit was uh, a recognition that many people from refugee backgrounds, um, particularly women with care responsibilities, mm. haven't had all the supports that have given them every opportunity to effectively engage in, mm. in paid work. Mm. Um, that's one example of many. I think we do need to look at how we can better support our settlement services to meet the needs of all new arrivals, but mm. particularly um, refugees and humanitarian entrants. Mm. Um, we can listen to the voices of those entrants. Um, we can hear from the settlement services workers on the ground um, and, and link that to a vision of settlement that, that really is consistent with our wider nation-building approach to migration, mm. to give everyone every chance to fully participate in Australian society on their terms. And when I think about refugees, um, our, our story as a nation has been so much driven by the 930,000 people who've come to Australia as refugees since World War II. Mm. And I think it's impossible to think about our country without their contributions. The resilience that characterises refugees is something that we need to do more to harness. And, and one 
small, not so small point that I'm really excited about is the work that's been done by Community Refugee Sponsorship Australia in terms of piloting new models of community sponsorship of refugees Mm -hmm. and to think about some of the wraparound services that these local groups of people who've come together to support humanitarian entrants are doing around housing, around schooling, around Mm. employment, I think offer some really strong pointers for how we can do a better job as a nation. And uh, I look at the Canadian experience there and I think what a difference that's made, Mm. what a difference it's made for so many refugees who've had a chance to rebuild their lives, but what a difference it's made to that country. Mm. I think it's made them a better and stronger country and I'm I'm confident that our commitments for 5,000 additional community-sponsored refugee places can make a similar difference to Australia if we harness the extraordinary goodwill and decency that's out there in Australian communities. Andrew Giles, there's plenty more to talk about in your portfolio. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have any more time, but thank you so much for coming to talk to us and uh, we'll have to get you back another time. That's great. Thanks so much, Sarah. This episode was produced by Jordan Beasley and Alison Chan. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'm Sarah Martin and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.